kind of going to move into a time of uh, listening to Scripture and the story of God in Scripture. So if you'll join us as we pray together and open our hearts to God's Word. Lord, our God, in the reading and proclamation of your word, we pray you will illumine our minds and hearts so that we may hear and understand your word, know and live according to your word and become living letters of your word, equipped to follow Jesus in every part of our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit through Christ, our Lord, the living word. Amen. A reading from Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I've commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Our reading from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was brought unto me, out unto me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy to the enemy, the worst of sinners. Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. 
I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God, we thank you for for your word, the story of your grace. Amen. Thanks, Joel. Uh, Worship gatherings get a bad rap. For any number of reasons. It's a good way to start out a message, right? Uh, you know, some worship gatherings we've experienced, they're dry and lifeless. Uh, they just uh, bore the fool out of you. Um, other worship gatherings can feel like a concert or entertainment, like the people up front are trying to impress us. Um, like this is some uh, religious commodity that we're consuming. And it, it has to be up to par for us to come back week after week after week, which can be frustrating for folks on the outside because they can legitimately ask, what good are your worship services doing? Because the church in many places remains segregated. We are in some ways complicit with injustice in the world. Uh, we tend to be just as conflicted or divorced or immoral as society at large. What good is a worship gathering? If it doesn't make a difference in our ethics, which has moved a good number of people to focus on how worship is a lifestyle. Right. Romans 12 talks about how our spiritual act of worship is offering our bodies up as living sacrifices to God. It's about a lifestyle and not just an event. And so if it's a lifestyle, then the event, the worship gathering is obviously less important. And, you know, personally, honestly, I'll say from my own from my own uh, experience, when we started Storyline, you know, a lot of these ideas and thoughts were informing how we started Storyline the way that we did. Why Storyline has a monthly worship gathering uh, up to this point, because uh, for a new church to start, it's possible that as you start a, a new church and you start that Every week kind of gathering, it has this way to become the be-all and end-all. It, it, it's this energy monster that takes all of your resources and time and it, it becomes um, the thing, right? And we, we didn't want it to be that. We, we knew there were other things that were important, like discipleship and, and interacting with our neighbors and, and being present with the poor, uh, and so even that idea for us was, was hey, maybe, maybe worship gatherings are less important than uh, we thought that they were. I remember reading Hugh Halter in uh, his book, uh, And, where he talks about how there's some research that shows that all of you will forget about 90% of what I say even a week from now. Uh, and so here I am subverting, you know, every what, what am I even doing up here? Right. You know, if you're going to remember 10 percent of, uh, of what I'm talking about, it kind of makes me feel like, well, what am I what, what the heck am I doing investing so much time in it? I just subverted the whole reason I'm giving this talk. Um, and again, if that's the case, if those are some of the dynamics, again, it kind of 
it, it brings worship gatherings down a notch. So all, all of this raises the question, uh, what are we doing here? What are worship gatherings for? Why do we gather? Uh, it's possible, I think, that all of the uh, legitimate shortcomings and limitations of worship gatherings can kind of drown out what are very positive aspects of why we worship together. Because there are some. There are some very legitimate, important, life-giving reasons that we come together for a time like this. So, why? Why do we gather to worship? As we talked about last month, uh, worship is about relationship, right? Uh, Worship is about love. We worship what we love. And we love what we worship. And all of us worship something or someone. We are worshiping creatures. We are built for worship. And so whether we're worshiping uh, a sports team or whether we're worshiping our child's education or whether we're worshiping the almighty God, all of us are worshiping something. We worship what we love and we love what we worship. So when we come together to worship, we could say that our worship is loving God together. So that may seem a little fuzzy, a little warm and fuzzy, if you will, to say that we love God together. What does that mean? How do we do that? What does it look like to love God together? How we answer this question makes all the difference. Uh, Over the last few hundred years, churches have answered this question in two really popular ways. Um, The first is that we gather to worship for education. We come to hear a sermon. Uh, we come to learn the scripture. We, we learn good information. This emerged initially in the Reformation when Martin Luther and others helped to establish the importance of preaching. Preaching had kind of lost its voice. The importance of proclaiming the word of God. And it it kind of grew um, until more and more and more and more and more space was given to preaching in gatherings. So that you had a little bit before and a little bit after. But most of it was coming to get educated about the word of God. The second emphasis is expression. Uh, This is another popular approach to why people worship. Uh, We come to express ourselves to God. This emerged from the revivalistic movements in the 1800s associated with the Great Awakening. Uh, We sing in our gatherings. We come together. We sing to warm the heart. And then we hear the gospel preached. And then there's an invitation or ministry time where we respond. So we sing and there's preaching and there's an invitation. Or now in in more uh, neo-charismatic kind of movements, there's a ministry time, right? Where we pray, we receive the Spirit. Um, All of this this, uh, kind of is rooted in the sense of we come to kind of express ourselves to God. To have a a place where we're, we're set free to kind of be comfortable with God and to experience the presence uh, of God. These approaches are different than how the early church got together to worship when they gathered. When the early church gathered for worship, they loved God. The way that they loved God was by telling God's story. They sang God's story. They proclaimed God's story. They even enacted God's story, which is why Robert Weber says that worship 
does God's story. When we're at our best, when we're when we're worshiping, our worship does God's story. We sing God's story. We proclaim God's story. We enact God's story. That may sound a little strange, right? We're not used to talking about our worship um, that way. Uh, We worship God by telling his story. So how do we do that? Uh, We worship God by enacting his story through through two ways. The first is remembrance. And the second is anticipation. So when we gather, we remember together what God has done in his story. And we thank God as we remember the God of the Exodus who delivered the people of Israel from their bondage and oppression. We praise the God who delivers the captives. We praise the God who delivers those who are oppressed and in darkness. We give thanks to God for what he's done when we remember We remember the part of the story, the the two moves of the story um, that are creation and incarnation. The first part of the story of God is that God creates the world. He creates the world for relationship, uh, to share relationship with all that he's made. And humanity, we receive that and we take it and say, we want to go off and do our own thing. And brokenness ensues. The whole world breaks. Our relationship breaks. Our minds break. Our relationship with God breaks. Our creation, our our earth, the created order breaks. And we remember that. And we remember the way God and Jesus becomes a man and brings creation and God together in a single person. God in the flesh. Jesus shows us what it's like to be truly human. And in his death and his resurrection, he takes on those forces of death and evil and he overcomes the powers and principalities. And he provides a way for all of us to be set free from all of that. So we remember that. We remember creation and incarnation. We remember the part of the story that's already happened. And we praise God because he did that. And he does that. And it has something to do with us. Second, we anticipate together what God will do in the future because we're in the middle of the story, right? The story is still going on. We're in a chapter in the midst of it. And so in worship, we look forward with eyes of faith and hope because there's a part of the story that hasn't been written yet. And that is the chapter of restoration. Because um, God's plan is not just to to suck our souls out of our seats and 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 zip us off to some far away heaven somewhere um, uh, where we'll fly away to the by and by like pie in the sky. God's God's will and God's plan is to restore the whole world. To transform this place into a new heavens and new earth. And and God comes down and dwells with his people. And we anticipate that. Because when that happens, everything that we see in front of us that's broken, the brokenness in me, the brokenness in my relationships, the brokenness in the systemic evils, the, the, the racial tension we see in our country, the oppression and slavery we see throughout the world, all of that will end. In the kingdom of God. And we anticipate that when we worship together. And so we praise God in faith 
and hope because God's kingdom has come in the person of Jesus. It's been initiated and it will be consummated in the restoration of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. Notice that in remembrance and anticipation, there are expressive elements. I get worked up just talking about it, right? I'm expressing myself. There are also educational elements. There are things to learn, certainly. But that is not the primary focus of why we gather to worship. Both of these approaches, whether it's expression or education, they put emphasis more on the humans doing the worshiping rather than God and God's story. The point of our worship is not to figure out how God fits into my story. The point of our worship is to find out how we fit into God's story in this world and how we participate and cooperate with what he is doing around us. There were two pillars of remembrance and anticipation in the early church's worship through which they told the story of God. One was word. And the other was table. Word and table were the staple of worship in the early church. If you look at Acts chapter 2 verse 42, they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That's the big idea of this sentence. The big two in this sentence are apostles' teaching and fellowship. We can't see that in English the way it is in the language it was first written. But that, that's what it's word and table. Apostles teaching and fellowship. Now notice fellowship is further described by the, the, the latter two things that follow it. Breaking of bread and prayer. Breaking of bread in Luke and Acts is a code word for the Lord's Supper. It's a code word for Eucharist or communion. It it means when they got around the table, when they ate bread, when they drank wine, they remembered the body of Jesus. They remembered the blood of Jesus. They remembered the person of Jesus. And they believed that that he was right there with them in their presence, hosting their meals. So word and table were fundamental rhythms. The apostles' teaching as word, prayer and fellowship as table. So when we talk about word, word is all of the ways that we hear God's word proclaimed. We read God's word in a way that gives us imagination for how we find our place in God's story. It's not simply self-help tips that feel relevant to us about about parenting, though the, the story of God has something to say about our parenting or our relationships. So the story of God has something to say about that. When we get together, we listen to the word. We hear the word proclaimed. We imagine the world that's described by scripture. And we imagine how that comes to life in our own world. We anticipate how they might come to life for us. And then at the table. We have such a beautiful table this morning. Isn't that a breath of fresh air? It's the, the centerpiece 
of our gathering. For the early church, the table was the crescendo. Everything revolved around this agape feast, this love feast. Um, communion is the culmination. And it is so because it's, it's not just a symbol or a ritual. These are not just symbols that we're taking. This is a nice thought we're having. For the early church, the reason this was so important was because Jesus, the presence of Christ, was with them in the room as they ate and as they drank. They believed that the, the very presence of God somehow mysteriously was even present in the juice that they drank, the wine they drank, and, and the bread that they ate. They were able to fellowship with the Lord Jesus around the table. Not only did they sing the story of God, not only did they preach the story of God, they actually acted it out, right? With actual, like, the stuff, the mundane stuff of life, bread and wine. They, they reenacted Jesus' last meal with His disciples. And they continued to do this as a way, not of just remembering this guy that died and is now in heaven somewhere, but by remembering that Jesus, right now, in our gathering, right now, Jesus is here. And Jesus is King. And Jesus is the host of this table. When we come to this table, we come to Jesus, the host. That's why it was the culmination of their gathering. We remember His death and life and resurrection. We anticipate the renewal of all things. And we do it by acting out the story of God together. We are communing with Jesus in this moment. 1 Corinthians 11 is a great example of how remembrance and anticipation shaped the practice of communion in the early church. Uh, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He'd given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you see remembrance and anticipation? Obviously, we remember the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But we also anticipate this, that like the story's not over. We proclaim his death in this meal until he comes. We anticipate when he'll return and set all things to right and restore the heavens and the earth, the earth to himself. So um, why, why are we talking about this? Why, uh, why are we even talking about worship this fall? Um, it's because storyline leaders have sensed God calling us to renew our practice of worship together. Um, you've even probably felt it a little bit this morning uh, that we're, we're piloting some new approaches to our worship gathering this fall. And there are a few reasons for this. Uh, number one, we want to worship God faithfully. That's who this is all about. And it's not about us. It's not about what we get out of it primarily. It's about coming to honor God, the author of the story, the, the source of our life and being, right? So we want to be faithful to God and we want to grow. We, we feel like there's some ways we can grow in how we tell the story of God together. 
Uh, Number two, we want to develop a template for our worship gatherings that will make it more simple, that will make it more predictable, that will allow more people to facilitate, that will engender even more participation from the folks that are sitting in their seat because our our worship is the work of the people, right? It It is our common task. It's not just for somebody to show us what to do from the front. All of us join in in finding our place in God's story together. Um, Another reason is, and you can see, uh, is that we want to pay a little more attention to aesthetics in our gatherings. Um, In small and simple but very very significant ways. Uh, Because God is a God of beauty, right? He created the sunrise. He, He likes things that are pretty. And something triggers in us when we see good art. When we see beauty in front of us, it, it awakens a sense of wonder in our hearts. And we, we have some challenges. There are good reasons for us to meet in a rec center, in the middle of a neighborhood, in a community which is the hub of so much life. We're missional people, right? That fits us perfectly. But we also want to make this a sacred space. We want, we want to clue in our senses, our eyes, our ears to the fact that, that God is here with us. And we want to tune our hearts to God together. Um, We want to continue, certainly, to balance um, aesthetics with deliberate simplicity in our gatherings. Because the worship gathering isn't everything that we do. Uh, We want to expend our best energies continuing to reach and connect and build relationships with each other as disciples and with the disconnected and the downtrodden. Um, let me, I'm going to geek out a little bit. Um, I just want to show you the logic of, of, of how we're going to gather this fall. Um, there are four basic moves, and we've moved through them um, this morning so far. We have a little more uh, way to go, but uh, I just want to give you the big picture. So the, the first move is just gathering. I mean, as we gather together, we, we gather uh, we're called to worship. Patrick called us to worship. Uh, our call to worship puts God in the center. It reminds us that we're here for Him and to remember and anticipate His story. Um, it also involves a time of preparation. When we come into the presence of God together, we're immediately confronted with, like Isaiah, the holiness of God. And our uh, our comparative unholiness or brokenness. And yet the gospel is that God takes our holiness and transforms it. And so we have moments where we confess our sins together and we receive the good news of God's grace on our behalf as we gather together. It also includes a time of hospitality, right? We love hospitality and storylines. So why don't we practice it in our gatherings? Let's welcome each other. Let's have some delicious donuts after the children have gone to class and do not ravage it. Let's have some coffee. Let's, let's chat. Let's catch up. Let's ask how God is doing in our lives. And then we move into this move of listening where we listen to the story of God, where the word of God is proclaimed, where we hear scripture from the Old Testament and from the New Testament and from the very story of Jesus um, every time we gather together. And then we have a time of silence where we reflect 
What's God saying to us right now? What are we going to do about it? You guys can hear the circle in that. Those of you who know the circle. And then we intercede. We pray together as we listen. The, the third move is communing. Again, the crescendo is coming around the table and being with Jesus and, and Him being our host and remembering and anticipating the gospel of Jesus. And that brings about this great sense of thanksgiving in us for what God's done, for what God is continuing to do in our own life. And then finally, the final move is sending, where we talk about, okay, what are the next steps? How's God calling us as a community deeper into discipleship? And we are blessed and sent into the world as disciples, as people on mission. So that's the, that's the big picture. That's the logic. Um, you've probably, even this morning, noticed that we've incorporated some more liturgical elements, if you will, more scripted responses and readings. And it may be weird for some of you, um, myself included, those of us who are from more free church kind of traditions where things are more extemporaneous than they are um, scripted. Uh, But to calm any fears, no, we have not joined the Catholic Church. We have not joined the Episcopal Church. Though these practices connect us to the historic church because the church throughout history has united around these kinds of practices, these kinds of moves in worship. This is a very ancient thing that we're connecting to together. Um, These kinds of elements, again, they bring about greater participation, greater shared leadership, greater simplicity and reproducibility so that our worship can truly be the work of the people, which is what the word liturgy means. And because our gatherings are the work of the people, we invite your feedback. We... um, we are piloting here. We're experimenting here. Um, you are a part of this process of experimentation with us. And so we're bound not to find our new rhythm immediately. And we'd like to hear from you. What, what, what is helpful? What's confusing as we try to grow into deeper ways of telling the story of God, of proclaiming it and singing it and enacting it together in our times of worship? Uh, this last week, one of my friends... Uh, named Ben put on Facebook. Uh, what? How do you determine if you've heard a good sermon? Now, I'm not opening this up for questions right now. Uh, how do you define what a good sermon is? And, you know, maybe some people would say, um, uh, "Well, you know, it, it, well, I know, I know one person. I'm not, I'm not going to out him. He's in my extended family. He would say a good sermon." has practical application and funny one-liners, which maybe good sermons do. I think that was pretty funny, right? Um, Maybe it has good stories. Maybe it's memorable. You know, it it moves me somehow. It makes me think. I think about something new. You know, what I've come to believe makes a good sermon, um, and it's not original to me. I'm I'm ripping off Jesus here. Um, A good sermon makes us want to do something. It makes us want to respond. It, it moves us to action. Right? The, the best sermons, the best thoughts. Jesus says, true wisdom, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, I think he says, um, true wisdom is hearing my words and putting them into practice. Right? Uh, and I think worship is like that. Good worship 
If worship is working, if you will, if we're really, maybe I should say it that way, if we're really worshiping the living God, uh, we come away impacted, influenced to do something, that to live in ways that are consistent with our worship, to, to live in ways that reflect the, the life and the character of the one that we worship. And, and when that happens, we can avoid the criticism of folks like Amos who would say on God's behalf, your worship gatherings make me sick because you come and act holy and then you go and you oppress the poor or you act like you don't care or you do whatever the hell you want and you don't pay attention to me. We avoid that criticism when we when we leave worship. Desiring to enact um, what we've experienced, to, to find ourselves in the story of God. I think I just said hell. Sorry about that. Kind of caught me by surprise. Um, so, good worship moves us to action, it moves us out into the world to join God's story more deeply, to draw near to the poor and oppressed, to reach out to the lost and the hurting, to join the, the widow who searches high and low for the lost coin, to join the shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one, to live more holy lives.